0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Lawrence Olivia, fabled British actor, star of stage and screen. Lord Olivia, so famous that you've probably heard of him, even though he's been dead for more than 30 years. What about Lawrence versus Olivia? Going on right now about something really important? Nah. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey, this is The Money, and Lawrence versus Olivia's coming up in a bit. Let's start with Medicare. There's widespread agreement that it needs reform. So far, the Albanese government's released the Strengthening Medicare Task Force report and committed to delivering $750 million over the next three years on the highest priority areas of primary care. Jane Halls, a health economist at the University of Technology, Sydney. Jane, what did you make of the report?
0: Look, I have to say, Richard, that I think the task force report is rather disappointing in that it's long on general principles and, if you like, nice feelings about how to improve primary care, but very short on exact prescriptions and exactly how that money can be spent. And, of course, that's not a lot of money in the overall scheme of things.
1: It's not. And it doesn't, to my reading of it, do much to address the sort of fundamental issue of what is driving cost increases, which which I've been assuming is mostly the fact that we're just an ageing population.
0: Well, there's certainly the issue of ageing and older people use more more healthcare. But really, when we look at the underlying drivers, what's much more important than ageing is, well, we've obviously got a growing population. We're trying to service more people, although, of course, that's had a little hiccup during the COVID years. But what we've got is great advances in medical science, so that we're seeing healthcare able to provide a lot more to people than it could a generation ago. And many of those new advances are actually more expensive rather than less expensive. So it's the possibilities of what we can do and the cost of those possibilities, much more so than aging.
1: And so I guess that that leads to expectations. We all have higher expectations of what our health can be. When I was born, which is in the mid-60s, somebody who was 65 was an old person in a way in which somebody who's 65 now is not.
0: Exactly. And life expectancy was much shorter. So at age 65, 50 years ago, you were much closer to the end of your expected lifespan than you are now at the age of 65.
1: So is it, is it volume as well, Jane? Are we actually going to the doctor, engaging with other health professionals more than we used to?
0: Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And we shouldn't think about that as just doing more for the sake of it, though there may be some elements of that. It's also because we expect a better quality of life, not just a longer life.
1: So better technology and processes leads to greater expectations, more engagement and volume. You can you can see how this quickly adds up.
0: Yes. Yes, you can. You can indeed.
1: If we look at those, I suppose the service that we're most familiar with, that's the GP's place, the general practice, how how should we fund them better?
0: Look, the argument about how we should fund them better has been going on for a hundred years. So Back in the late part of the 1800s, people were talking about why are we funding doctors to take care of us when we're sick? Why don't we fund them more if they keep us well? Or as George Bernard Shaw said in um, one of his plays, why do we fund surgeons to take off legs. Why aren't we all hopping around legless? Because that's their incentive is is to do more. So this debate has been going on for a long time. And I think that's part of what makes the Strengthening Medicare Task Force report rather disappointing, that it's not treading new ground here. its It's just going back over old ground. And so we know that we think about primary care, we think about the GP as for most of us, most of our contact with the health system. Mm -hmm. Paying GPs to see us is very good if most problems can be solved in, in one or two consultations and we just want doctors to keep being busy seeing people and that that's the best way to run the health system. But as we have a better understanding of the lifestyle factors that impinge on our our health and well-being, as we're dealing with more problems that are chronic health problems, then obviously we need a different sort of approach to managing our healthcare and to paying for our healthcare.
1: So does that mean that something like the, the fee-for-service needs to change? Because you you can imagine, well, as an economist, it's very clear on what that incentivizes to happen.
0: Exactly. And I think There's lots of debate that if we could change the way we pay for healthcare, or at least some of it, we would get better value for the money that we're we're putting in and we would solve some of these problems. But I think as an economist, and I'm sure you'll recognise this quickly, what we have to take into account when we think about how to change the system is that most of these providers are businesses. Some are small businesses. It's still a one-person general practice. Some are all sorts of sizes in between up to large corporates. And so what works for a large corporate entity that's hiring GPs and providing a service is very different to a one person small business in effect. And of course, what businesses don't like is risk where they can't see the value of the change in the business model and I think that's what's being overlooked in the debate at the moment.
1: So if we just go back quickly to the fee-for-service, it, it, yes. it incentivizes doctors to see lots of patients really and the other thing it does, and this is something you've pointed out but which I hadn't thought of, was that it constrains them too into delivering the care based on, on the items in the schedule.
0: Oh absolutely. And at a very minute level, you know, there are thousands and thousands of items in the schedule. Now, we've had two approaches as a country, you know, in terms of health system reform, we've really had two approaches trying to trying to move away from that. We've introduced new items that instead of being based on a 15 to 20 minute consultation with a doctor, are around chronic disease management so they still fit in that schedule of different items but it says you know you review the patient you develop a management plan and you review the patient in at least 12 months and so that's an attempt to introduce something that isn't a time-based consultation but if you like a a purpose or intent-based consultation.
1: That would make the GP in a way, the patient's health coordinator, kind of managing care with different health professionals if required?
0: Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, in that it provides the the money for the practice, for the doctor providing that, but it doesn't really do a lot about the other health professionals that you might want to see. So if you've got let's say you've got some mobility problems due to arthritis, you probably need a physiotherapist, you might need a nutritionist because of the dietary factors implicated. Now, if if a practice employs a physiotherapist and a nutritionist, you can see how it all comes together. But for a practice to do that, there's a lot of risk in that to say, should we take on another employee? And how will we make sure we've got the the services to keep them busy and to generate the income that's going to cover paying for them?
1: Uh, Listening to you, Jane, we have to consider how much we need from government, how much is going to come out of pocket, and how much from private insurance, I suppose.
0: Yes, that's right. And one of the points I'd like to make, Richard, is that as a country, we have a a choice, if you like, in how we pay for our our healthcare. And what the government does through Medicare, the sort of broader Medicare, is take on the role of an insurer. And if the government vacated that role, we would be looking to private health insurance. So how much we as individuals pay It could come through government and through taxes. It could come through out-of-pockets. It could come through insurance. And we really have a choice as a society about the blend of those different payment mechanisms.
1: Looking at the United States, where they spend more than twice as much of their GDP on health for less good outcomes, and it's overwhelmingly a private insurance system, that does not beckon particularly.
0: It does not, but there are some other systems, the Netherlands for example, where private insurers play a strong role but they do it in a highly regulated market. And the other point I'd like to make about the Netherlands and its managed competition approach is that it took them about 20 years to implement it fully and over that 20 years the vision of where they were going was constant so people knew what they were working towards And there was a a large investment in the sort of research and evidence you need to implement that system.
1: One can only hope for that here, Jane. Thank you very much for joining us today.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Richard.
1: Jane Hall is Distinguished Professor of Health Economics in the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at UTS. Now to Lawrence versus Olivia, the argument, the debate. The man who drew my attention to it is Richard Holden from the University of New South Wales Business School. Richard, I'll ask you about it in a moment, but firstly, with the RBA putting up the cash rate to 3.35%, how much harder will it be to get the so-called soft landing?
2: I think it's looking harder than we thought it was at the end of last year, and it was already looking pretty hard. And um you know, the governor used language along the lines of there remains a very narrow path um towards a soft landing and I th- I think it's looking tough. You know, we're still not making a huge dent in inflation, it doesn't seem to be getting worse, but it's yet to get meaningfully better. There are going to be more interest rate increases, that was made pretty clear. And at some point that runs a pretty meaningful risk of a recession. Yeah. He
1: he pretty much underlined it to say more increases. <laughs> it's very much spelt out.
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty clear and I think the strategy that he seems to have adopted and actually in the sort of the minutes of the November meeting made this pretty clear that rather than sort of do a few 50 basis point increases and then sort of stop and pause, that the board was going to continue to make a series of smaller 25 basis point increases and just keep reminding people that there's more to come and so sort of a constant flow of 25-point increases rather than the sort of start-stop type stuff seems to be the strategy they're adopting. So I, I think you can be pretty confident that unless anything meaningful changes, you'll see rate rises of 25 points at each of the next two meetings at least.
1: Yes, RBA governors do not have to be popular.
2: Which is a good thing yes. for Phil because he seems to be unpopular with both the public and the government.
1: Well, today we're looking at that much bigger picture, which is what happens after. And it's more or less... Do we go back to where we were before?
2: Well, that's exactly right. So if we cast our minds back to before the pandemic, all the pressure was on, on interest rates to go even lower. They were they were still really quite low in Australia, around sort of 1.5%. But in much of the rest of the world, in the US and Europe, rates have been at zero or even slightly negative for, for, for years and years and years, basically since the financial crisis of 2008. And this was explained by a theory known as secular stagnation, which is a a theory that that Larry Summers sort of repopularized, And this is an idea of a a kind of a protracted period of low economic growth and low inflation, despite there being very low interest rates. And so that was the world we were in Mm. before the pandemic. And the real question is, do we go back to that world after fight against inflation is over? Or or are we going to be in an era where there are maybe not super high interest rates, but where something like 4% is more the norm?
1: Yeah. So to get to that, to get to grips with that, we kind of have to talk about what caused that uh, secular stagnation. What do we think caused it?
2: At some level, it has to be to do with the supply of and demand for um, investment dollars or for money, basically. And there, there were forces pushing um, on both of those. So on the demand side, it became possible to create very, very valuable, very, very large companies with a relatively small amount of investment dollars. So the example I always give is, you know, Facebook or Google could get created with a good idea and a $3,000 laptop. You know, they took a little bit more than that. But basically, you could create multi hundred billion dollar companies with very small amounts of financial capital compared to building railroads or steel manufacturing plants or big heavy industry that required you know a lot of financial capital so there was there was less demand for financial capital at the same time there was more supply of savings because we have across much of the advanced economies in the world an aging population which means people spending more time in retirement which means either privately or through public vehicles, saving more for retirement. And, you know, those sorts of demographic forces really pushed there to be more savings. Along with that, you had sovereign wealth funds and the rise of the decabillionaire. So there's a lot of money to be invested and not quite so many ways Mm. to spend it. And so just like in the supply and demand for milk changes, it affects the price. The supply and demand for savings basically pushed down the price of money. And that's what an interest rate is.
1: So you have identified this debate or, or disagreement or, or argument, I don't know what we'll call it, between two extremely distinguished economists. This is more or less the, the, the difference between what Larry Summers thinks and what Olivier Blanchard thinks.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So so Summers, interestingly, given that he sort of popularised the secular stagnation idea, has come out and said that he he thinks we won't go back to the pre-COVID era of secular stagnation. Basically, that the pandemic changed everything. You know, he doesn't think that he got the past wrong, (laughs) um, perhaps not surprisingly. He thinks all the forces that we just talked about, the demographic forces and the demand for investment, all those sorts of things are still there. But what the pandemic did, particularly in, say, the US, was it really dramatically pushed up public debt levels. And the stimulus in the US was, was really huge as a share of the economy relative to places like Australia, where it was already pretty big. And that there's pretty clear need for more government spending on things like defence, on social infrastructure. And I think, intriguingly, that In the post-COVID era, we can't rely as much or don't want to rely as much on just-in-time supply chains. So if we move to what you might call just-in-case supply chains, basically Mm. building more redundant capacity into the economy, there will be demand for lots of investment dollars. So Summers thinks that we're not going to go back to the the pre-COVID era. Blanchard, by contrast, thinks we will go back. So they both agree that the same factors that were at play prior to the pandemic are still largely at at play here. Certainly the demographic factors and so on, there's no dispute about that. But Blanchard sort of takes a very data-driven approach, looks at 10-year bond rates and long-term bond rates, sort of says, well, the market's telling us that interest rates are still really pretty low 10 years out from now. And... In fact, once you deduct off inflation to get the real interest rate, which is what matters for investment decisions, they're really negative at the moment. And he says, well, I'm not sure that anything meaningful has changed. The market's telling us we're going to go back to a very low interest rate environment. Why would I doubt that?
1: Well, Richard, who is right?
2: Well, you know, I'm going to do the usual economist hedge. I knew you were going to do it, yeah. They drum that into us in graduate school and it's sort of part of the, uh, part of the user manual. But um, I think that Summers has got a really intriguing argument in the US and a really good argument. And I think this point about more redundant capacity in the economy uh, as well as the defence expenditure, but particularly more redundant capacity in the economy, I think is a really powerful argument. And so I I think there's a good chance that he's right there and and that might apply to Europe largely as well. I think Australia is an interesting case. I think Larry's got a a less strong argument there and and Olivier has a stronger argument. Our stimulus spending was big, but it wasn't nearly as big as a share of the economy as, as places like the US. The other thing is we had very, very low ingoing debt levels, so we have pretty low outgoing debt levels, so there's much less pressure on our borrowing rates being driven up by high debt to GDP levels. In fact, Australia's had this peculiar, on a global scene, peculiar way of having actually very, very low debt. You know, for some period of time, no government debt to GDP. So I think there, the Blanchard argument of, you know, we'll go back to sort of secular stagnation has real purchase. The one caveat, to caveat my caveat, is that the energy transition in Australia could be very, very, very expensive. So given our economic geography, given the size of the country and so on, Mm. it's quite possible that we'll have to build an enormous amount of backup capacity if we're going to completely get rid of coal and gas. And if we do that, we might need to, to build multiples of the sort of levels Of potential supply for for our energy markets to deal with the issues with renewables and the intermittency issues. If that happens, maybe the demand for investment dollars in Australia will be so high that someone will prove to be right in Australia as well. But, you know, these are the things to look out for. It's hard to make a prediction about exactly what's going to happen, but we're going to learn more about this um, over time as the inflation fight gets put away.
1: Well, we have to get that done first. But if you're right about Larry Summers being right about the USA and perhaps Europe, but Olivia Blanchard being right about Australia, then we'll be in a low growth and the rest of the rich world will be in more of a high growth environment.
2: That's right. And this will have real implications. It'll mean that the arguments and the prescriptions that people were calling for, for big infrastructure spending in Australia in the 2010 to 2020 decade, those will have a good basis. And some of Labor's policies about national reconstruction funds and things like that will start to look like incredibly sensible things. On the other hand, if we end up in this sort of the summers world, then more government spending, throwing more fuel on the fire might have significant downsides to it. So whoever's right about this for Australia will have real implications for uh, what our public policy and public finances look like.
1: It will. Richard, thank you very much for joining us again on The Money. Pleasure, Richard. Professor Richard Holden is at the University of New South Wales Business School. How do you annoy the mining sector and the agricultural sector At the same time, you suggest trimming the fuel tax credit. That's exactly what the Grattan Institute proposes in a move it says would save the federal budget a very handy $4 billion a year. Marion Terrell is Transport and Cities Programme Director at the Grattan. Marion, let's start with how much fuel tax we pay.
3: So the way it works is that in terms of gross fuel tax, we pay over $20 billion a year. But about uh, $8 billion of that is refunded through fuel tax credits. So every time you fill up your car, you pay a fuel tax of $0.48 cents a litre. Mm. And, and businesses pay this tax as well, but then they have some or all of it refunded through fuel tax credits.
1: Who, who gets to access that? Because it's not everybody, is it?
3: It's not everybody. So private users, of course, pay the full rate, plus they pay GST on the fuel and GST on the fuel tax. If businesses are driving light vehicles, they pay the full rate of fuel tax, but of course they can tax deduct their costs. Heavy on-road vehicles, larger than four and a half tonnes, pay a reduced rate of fuel tax, so they're paying 27 cents a litre. And for vehicles that drive only off-road or for other off-road uses like heavy machinery, they don't pay any fuel tax
1: at all. So is the fuel tax, does it go to build and maintain roads? Is it hypothecated?
3: No, it's not hypothecated. It hasn't been since 1959. I think people often have the impression that if we cut fuel tax or, or, you know, fuel tax declines over time, that there won't be any money to pay for roads. But by and large, it goes into consolidated revenue.
1: All right. So we've talked about how depending on what you've got, you get to access the credit. Which industries end up being the biggest recipients of the credit?
3: So there are 19 industries in Australia and five of them together get 88% of the value. By far the biggest is mining. It gets uh, $3.4 billion worth. Um, and the other industries that also get substantial amounts are transport, then uh, agriculture and construction and manufacturing do get a little bit as well.
1: And together that's worth about $8 billion. What is the yes. justification, Marion? Why, why are we prepared to forego a fair amount of revenue.
3: The biggest discrepancy in here is the two rates, the on and off road rate. And that's been a a big part of the public debate that's been going on at the moment about whether you should pay for on and off road rates. But I I think there has been historically some justifications about not paying for roads. But the other thing that um, we found is that there's been a lot of rhetoric about it being to help rural areas and, and a significant benefit Uh, for rural and regional households and businesses because it's been pushed by the National Party over time, John Anderson in in 1999, Ian McFarlane, Peter Dutton in, in bringing the latest iteration back in 2006. So it has always been sort of meant to be something that's special for regional areas. The problem with this I think is that most of the businesses in the top five industries that get most of the credits are actually in major cities, and two-thirds of their employees are also based in major cities. So it's just not very effective at helping regional areas.
1: All right. So what are you proposing at the Grattan?
3: So what we're proposing is to remove fuel tax credits entirely for on-road vehicles and to approximately halve them for off-road users of diesel and other fuels. And this would save about $4 billion a year.
1: So you put this out there the other day. The mining industry and the farmers, they're already saying, you can't do this, it would be a disaster.
3: Yeah, they are saying that. Um, Just to explain the rationale behind our proposal, what we looked at is um, what is the damage that's caused by burning diesel and, and other fuels? And you can quantify this damage and that's what we did. So there's three components really that we think are relevant. Number one is carbon emissions. We've used a fairly conservative price of $75 a tonne, and that equates to 20 cents a litre, that is uh, the cost to the community in the form of carbon emissions. Yeah. And then this is actually quite a low price, I should say. It's lower than much lower than the internal carbon prices that several companies use to guide their investment decisions where they're using more than $100 a tonne. Companies like Toll, BP, Rio Tinto, Newmont, those kind of places so carbon emissions is 20 cents of it. Air pollution is mostly very localised. We took a very conservative two cents a litre for a rural rate. And then the third element is road construction and maintenance. And this is calculated by the National Transport Commission. And they come up with 37 cents a litre. And that's currently under-recovered. At the moment, the road user charge is 27 cents So, if you add up the $0.20, the $0.02 and the $0.37, you get to almost $0.60 per litre. And our proposal is simply just to remove the fuel tax credit, which is only $0.48 a litre. It's a conservative approach to this where you could go further, but, you know, we don't want to overreach. So, what we've proposed is just this modest reform so that business users of diesel pay the price that they impose on the community through burning diesel.
1: Right so as you will I'm sure be aware Marion one of the things that I think some of the grain farmers have said is this will add costs that will not be sustainable and what will end up happening is that the ordinary consumer will pay more.
3: So I understand those concerns and I think in terms of the extra costs we have crunched the numbers we've looked at what the costs would be and what we've assumed is that farmers fully pass these costs onto consumers, so on that basis. And the costs would be very modest to households. The biggest impact for households would be on groceries, and the price of a $100 shop at the supermarket would rise by 35 cents to $100.35 if our changes were introduced. And that would come about in two ways. Partly, the increase in transport costs would add about 0.1 0.1 of 1% or 10 cents on a $100 item. And for agricultural items, they'd also go up by a very small amount. So the additional cost faced by Australian agricultural producers would mostly be less than 1%. And in terms of how it would translate, if fully passed on to consumers, would be a net impact of about 25 cents. So the 10 cents for transport, 25 cents for agriculture brings you to 35 cents on a $100 shop.
1: Right. And this would return about $4 billion to consolidated revenue. That's right. Marianne, really interesting. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Richard. Marianne Terrell from the Grattan Institute. And that's it for now. The money's produced by Kate MacDonald. I'm Richard Aidey.